0: This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. (laughs) Listener discretion is advised.
1: You're listening to the Real Life Podcast, brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast... We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. Are you looking for Thin Blue Line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's Line. the number 4 women.com show your support for law enforcement and get your thin blue line gear today just click on shop at women.com. don't forget you can listen to the real life podcast on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts radio public breaker Overcast, Pocket Casts, and on YouTube. Thank you for joining us. In this interview, full-time officer and award-winning author, Sean Wyman, tells me about his book titled, Going Beyond the Call, Mental Health Fitness for Public Safety Professionals. The mission of the book is to reduce suicide and mental health challenges within the ranks. This book is for officers, firefighters, EMS and EMT, 911 dispatchers, forensic investigators, and even correctional officers. Pretty much every first responder. Sean also talks about his first book titled, Let Go the Movement Process, and his life story that inspired the book. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Hi, Sean. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. So before we dive into your book, tell the listeners a little bit about you. Who are you?
0: Wow. So I am a police officer of 20 years. Uh, I've been blessed to do pretty much everything I ever wanted to do in my childhood dreams as a police officer, from uh, operational and administrative. Um, I've been on canine, I was an attack operator on our entry team for a while. I've been in vice narcotics, uh, I've worked the work patrol. Um, I mean, like I said, pretty much anything you can think of, I've done it. I've been a trainer. For uh, 18 years with uh, defensive tactics and firearms and high liability, I am a, uh, an author of uh, two best-selling books on Amazon, and I have a beautiful wife of 15 years. I have three beautiful children, the first one being 22 years old, my second one being 12 years old, and my third one just turned eight years old.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. Yeah. There's a story in that too. <laughs>
1: I'm just thinking, wow, 22 and then 12. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, an officer of 20 years so far. Wow. Uh-huh. That's a long time. I retired at my 20 year mark. So, you're going to keep going?
0: Well, yeah. I've got about five more years to, okay. uh, to hit my end point. Gotcha.
1: All right. So, let's discuss the important book that we came here to talk about today. Yes. This let's- book is called Going Beyond the Call Mental Health Fitness for Public safety professionals and this what timing right i know you wrote this book i think it came out in december of last year it but did. i think the timing is right for right now
0: it's unbelievable the timing is unbelievable
1: unbelievable so go ahead and um talk about this book like where where did it come from where did you get the idea and also you you're a co-author so yes. tell yes, a yes. little bit of you know who who helped you write this so absolutely what's it about? so Going Beyond
0: the Call, Mental Health Fitness for Public Safety Professionals really focuses on the social-emotional aspects of what we do in law enforcement. Originally, when we started uh, thinking about writing something or putting something together, this all started with uh, my first book. I wrote my first book, and that really focused on my past, um, my, uh, my youth and the different challenges I faced. And more importantly, the outcome as far as, um, you know, how it was self-destructive for a long period of time and how I was able to finally get to a point where I could address it, meet it, you know, head on and actually, you know, let it go and move forward, which is why I wrote the the first book it was called Let Go the Movement Process. So. When I wrote the first book, that was kind of a self-help book. And I really wanted people to to recognize that no matter where you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, you can let go and you can move forward. So that led to speaking engagements and, and all kinds of cool opportunities. And a lot of those were taking me into the social work foster care network and, and meeting with those people and talking to them. And remember, I'm, I'm still doing the job. you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still working. And And as I was going through, I started meeting some really incredible people. One of them was a woman named Tonir Kane, who really gave me a a huge visual of of, how important my profession was, and more importantly, not to give up on anyone, no matter who you interact with, no matter how bad a shape they seem like they're in. Her philosophy and and her, her quote is, where there's breath, there's hope. And that really stuck with me. She became a mentor of mine and um, helped me to understand this thing called trauma-informed care. And and for your audience, I don't know know, how many are going to understand this term or have heard this term, a large majority of them. Don't know this term. And okay. it's really big in the social work industry, really big. Like, you know, everybody's trauma informed. And that's what I began to recognize. Everybody's like walking around, like, hey, I'm trauma informed. I'm trauma informed. <laughs>
1: but
0: well, then what you would that? ask, right. But then you would ask the question, what is it? And how do you implement it? Right. So, trauma informed is recognizing that there is a baseline of trauma that happens in about 67% of the population globally that happens in their childhood from the age of zero to 18 years old. Well, I fell right into that one because I I got it right away because I had a lot of childhood adversities and a lot of different things, and they fell right in line with a lot of the things they talked about. And I began to think about the people that I'd interacted with while I'd been on the job, the different uh, types of trauma that they had faced, the different types of uh, things that we investigate. And as a trainer, you know, we we train in high liability, right? You were a police officer, so you understand mm-hmm. this, right? We mm-hmm. had firearms, we had defensive tactics, and we had driving. Those were the three high liabilities that we focused on. and And very important things, don't get me wrong. But realistically, when we look at it from a a percentage wise how often do we drive like in in hot pursuits and stuff and how often do we really shoot people and how often do we really get into physical encounters right and when i looked at that it was i mean in in the country use of force is less than 1% right deadly force is even less than that so we're applying we're using these techniques. Don't get me wrong, and they got they're they're super important. We gotta mm-hmm. have them. That's why they're where they're at. Right. But when I started really paying attention to the suicide rates in law enforcement, originally it was just law enforcement. I looked at the suicide rates, and in my state, in Florida, particularly, we were in the top three for like the last now it's five years we've been in the top three in the country for law enforcement suicide. So I started asking the question, why? It's not like we haven't known for a long time that we're we're self-destructive. I mean, when I was in the academy, on my, uh, in, uh, when did I start? Uh, two thousand, right? When I started <laughs> in two thousand, that's when you know you're getting old, right? When did yeah, I start? Right. in two thousand, right? Um, I remember them telling me, "You're, you know, some of you are going to get divorced, some of you are going to become alcoholics." Some of you are going to end up in jail. Right. And it was almost like bragging rights. Almost. Mm -hmm, It wasn't mm -hmm. like nobody said why. Nobody talked about, hey, guys, you're going to go to these places. You're going to see things that nobody has seen. You're going to be expected to be social workers. You're going to be expected to be psychologists and and you're going to be expected to be the one that has all the answers. And when you get there, you're not going to have them. And these are the different types of trauma that you're gonna face. And this is how your body's gonna to respond to that trauma. And this is why nutrition and sleep and hydration and all these things are so important. And this is important for your relationship, right? We didn't get any of that. Right. We focused on the basic fundamentals of law mm-hmm. enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. Laws, constitution, what we can and can't do, use of force, defensive tactics, uh defensive driving, right? All the all the different the the, the the basic aspects. Yet the number one thing that kills us is ourselves. And when I realized that, it just hit me really hard. And I and I almost, it was like I started reflecting back and looking at all the people I had triggered in my relationships with people I'd interact with while I was on the job and people that had triggered me and caused me to say things and do things that if I would have recognized it sooner, I could, have, I could have had better control over those things. Mm-hmm. I could have stayed rational in emotional state. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. as I, as I, as I saw all this, I connected with my good friend D, her name is Deirdre von Kroskoff, but we call her D cause that's a lot <laughs> easier to say. Uh-huh. And she's, she's my, um, She's my right hand, man. She um, she has her story that, that focuses on her aspect of it. She's from Canada. She was one of the first female snipers in Canada when they wow. started testing female snipers. She married this amazing guy. They had an amazing marriage for like 20 to 25 years. And in one moment, it all disappeared. It all disappeared. One traumatic moment. And this was a woman that was a fixer, man. She went into corporate, into corporations and did all kinds of things, helping them problem solve and and work on things and fix things. And when this thing happened to her husband and changed him forever, she couldn't fix it. And it broke her heart. And and so I had immediate buy-in from her when we started talking about mm-hmm. this. And, and we just realized that this was something we really wanted to do, that we wanted to find a way To get this information out there that we felt like if law enforcement became more understanding of the different types of trauma that they were facing, that if they got the what I call the trauma informed uh, policing um, ideology, Mm -hmm. that it would change the culture of law enforcement. It would make us more human to the public that we serve, to the communities that we serve. It would reduce liability dramatically because we wouldn't be uh, spending money in frivolous lawsuits because we're learning to stay rational in emotional situations, which is so, so important in our line of work. Mm-hmm. You're seeing it right now, right? With all over the country, the, the, the you see the ones that are staying rational and you see the ones that are getting emotional and, right. and it's, just, it's, it's crazy. It's hard to watch. Absolutely. So, understanding that and looking at that, we decided we wanted to do this book. So one night, uh, D comes in from Canada and we're at my house. It's my wife and her and me, and we're sitting there, and we got two whiteboards, and mm-hmm. I start saying something, and then she starts saying something. and we start bouncing ideas back and forth. And then about seven o'clock in the morning that morning, you know we we, we started this probably about three am. About seven in the morning, we had this whole outline. I still have a picture of it. This whole outline of, of our book, and I'm like, "Wow, this is amazing! We got yeah, this." That's awesome. So a year later, right? It took us about a year to compile all the data and get the research and get permission for citations and all the thing, all the references and all the all the stuff that we compiled in this book. And the original manuscript. How, how many pages do you think the original manuscript was? Oh, yeah. I'm gonna. Yeah.
1: Well, well. Now that you're saying that, I'm going to guess high. I'm going to say 500. It's probably more than that.
0: Higher. Okay.
1: It was I don't know. 925 wow.
0: pages. It was oh like this. It was like this thick, right? And uh, we're looking at it. We're all excited. We're like, yeah, we did it. We got <laughs> it right. So now we're going. Okay. What do we do? We need to find someone that'll back this because nobody knows who D is. Nobody knows who Sean Wyman is. And if we're going to really push this thing and get it out there and 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 make a culture shift in our country in law enforcement, we've really got to go after it. So we start thinking, OK, who do I who would be the person that I could go to that would get this, that would understand this, that would go, you know what? Yes, I get this and I want to be a part of this. So I started thinking about it and a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman came to mind and I was like, what's the sh- what do I got to lose? Right. And a friend of mine told me how to get in touch with him. Somebody that had worked with him before. And so I reached out to him and he's like, yeah, come to, come to my next seminar. I'll give you a 30 minute lunch. Let's talk. I was like, all right, cool. So we hop over to Jacksonville. We meet up with him a few months later. I hand him this 900 page manuscript. Here we go. And you know, he looks at me like I'm crazy, right? He's like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like, look, all I'm asking is that you just take a look at it and 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 just give me your insight. I said, I believe when you take a look at this based on some of the things that you've written about and that you've discussed and you've taught that this will be connected. So he did. He looked at it. It took a few months. He got back to us. He said, this is one of the most important works of our lifetime. You absolutely have to do this. Wrote the foreword for it you know gave it his uh his seal of in, of approval if you will and we were off to the races at that point but as we started doing more research we recognized it wasn't just police officers that were depressed and committing suicide mm-hmm. firefighters mm-hmm. EMS corrections dispatch all of them and I was mm-hmm. like holy cow we are such a self-destructive industry right so that's when we decided to create it for all public safety professionals, and not just uh, law enforcement or first responders.
1: Now, for you to have Lieutenant Grossman back, you, I'm amazed right now, because if 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 you're a cop listening to this podcast right now and you don't know who Lieutenant Grossman is, you exactly. need you, you <laughs> something's wrong. You need to Google him and read about him.
0: So yes, what, he's got a brand new he's got a brand new book that just came out on spiritual combat.
1: Spiritual combat, got it. Mm-hmm. So what's the mission of your book?
0: So the mission of our book is simply this, to help public safety learn the social-emotional aspects of what we do, to understand the trauma, to understand what the science behind it is, what it does to us over the long term, to help us to recognize that there are events that we're going to have to go to and we have no control over that. Mm-hmm. And then during those events, there's going to be experiences and we're not going to have any control over that. Mm-hmm. But the effects, the short term and the long term effects, if we have the right training, if we have the right understanding, we can, can, we can work on that. We can address that. We can recognize when we're starting to go down that dark rabbit hole and go, wait a minute, I remember learning about this, I need to call somebody, I need to get on the phone, I need to go talk to my peer support, I need to, you know, find a resource, they gave me a ton of resources, let me see what's available, let me get a hold of somebody, and that's really what it's all about, is giving us a, look, when you go in the military, right, you learn how to avoid the ambush, and how to fight the ambush, before you ever get ambushed, Mm -hmm. you do it on a whiteboard, And then you go out in the field and you do what's called dry runs where you're just practicing, practicing, practicing. You're not only the good guys, you're also the bad guys. You see it from multiple dimensions, how the attack's going to come, where the Mm -hmm. attack's going to come from, how you're going to fight it off, where you're going to go, where you're going to retreat to. Objective rally points, the whole nine yards, right? And we train and train and train and train and train. So when the ambush comes, we're ready. We're fired up, right? Because we know we're ready because preparation leads to preservation right procrastination leads to devastation so what happens with us we don't train we get ambushed a lot of us get ambushed within our first first 6 months on the job mm-hmm. you're going holy cow i did not realize how emotionally draining this is right because when you're going in day in and day out and you're dealing with other people's problems and other people's challenges and you have your own personal ones mm-hmm. still that you have to address It can be exhausting. And now look at three years and then five years and then 10 years and then 15 years and then 20 years. And you look and that's why I believe the suicide rates are up so high because we're not educating. We're not training. We're not putting this stuff out there up front and helping them to prepare for the the mental ambush that's going to come.
1: Now, I wish you would have written this book in 1996 when I got Me on the too. department, <laughs> because um, I don't know. Do you do you know that I, I wrote a book recently? Through, I through did. My eyes? I, I've, been, I've been doing my research on you. Oh, yes. You have. I, um, well, I don't- OK, so my book is titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul. And it's about 11 of the worst crime scenes that I worked on. And it, it just I, I literally wish I would have had this book in front of me to read before I even started my CSI career, because I would have known, you know, the ins and outs and, and how, Oh, Oh, this is affecting me. Oh, that, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I would have had those resources and, and, you know, we did have peer support and we had chaplains back then that did help. But I, I think that anything above and beyond that, you know, that you can read, get it, get your mind into, get your mind wrapped around can help anybody. So, so you said that the mission of this book was, you know, well, in a nutshell, to reduce suicide yeah. and mental health challenges. But the goal is also—I'm reading this from your from your description from Amazon—it's to increase mental health fitness among the ranks of all the careers, not just law enforcement, but right. firefighters, corrections, forensics, nine-one-one, um, so that so that their wellness and stress management on the job performance and their home lives are all improved significantly. So we've got to improve everything, your, your wellness, your stress management on the job and at home. Yep. Right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And we we got to do it with the families too, because the Mm family, they end up taking a lot of the brunt of this. They take a lot of punishment from this and they get emotionally ambushed just as much as the, as we do primarily, you know? So uh, definitely, you know, that's something else we're working on is, is we're working with the families as well.
1: Yeah. So how so how does one use this book if they were to get on Amazon right now and purchase it? Is it just a, a narrative type of read or is it a workbook? Like how do they use this book? You know, it's it's a workbook.
0: And so you can what I love about it is you can go from cover to cover or you could go you could go through the table of contents and go hmm trauma informed care I want to I want to go to that and, and slide to that chapter and start learning about trauma informed care oh this part talks about the different types of trauma I want to learn about that oh this talks about social emotional intelligence I want to learn about that oh this talks about ego states oh this is a, a communication aspect right i mean there's so many different aspects so but it's really you know somebody recently told me this they were like hey i looked at the book and i've been i really have enjoyed it because I know it's a textbook, but it doesn't read like a textbook because we form a lot of our own stories. Look, I didn't just write this and make this stuff up. I actually applied this stuff. I I tested this. I I street tested a lot of what I talk about and what my partner D talks about in here. We tested this to validate it before we ever decided to put it into a book because I know validation means everything. If you go out there and you haven't street tested it and you can't prove what you've done, you put yourself in a very vicarious situation, which I don't want to do. And I I want right. to help people, not hurt
1: them. Well, and I don't think that Lieutenant Grossman would write the foreword for your book.
0: No I, don't, I, no, I agree. Oh, so,
1: right. Okay, so we're going to take a super quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some questions that you were asked today on your Facebook page. Okay, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, so we'll be right back. All right. Are you interested in CSI or forensics? The Forensic Science Academy program has been recognized as the premier training program completely dedicated to students who are launching their forensic career. The Academy offers specialized hands-on training modules in basic and advanced crime scene investigation, forensic photography, fingerprint identification and classification, crime scene management and corner investigations. Instruction is offered in the form of weekend workshops, online courses, webinars, and seminars. Training at the Academy of Forensic Science will give students the competitive edge employers and agencies are looking for when hiring. Past graduates are now working as crime scene investigators, private investigators, forensic pathologists, coroner investigators, forensic nurses, forensic accountants, and even criminalists. The courses are taught by forensic professionals who are experts in the field and hold membership in the International Association for Identification and other professional forensic organizations. For more information, visit ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Again, that's ForensicScienceAcademy.org. All right, we're back from break. And... Sean, go ahead and read some questions that you were given today on your Facebook page sure. about so your book. Since
0: I knew that we were going to do this podcast, I put something out on my Facebook page and said, hey, anybody have any questions they'd like asked on the podcast? So um, one of the questions was, are officers suffering from PTSD? And the answer is, yes, there are people in, in our profession that are suffering from PTSD. A large majority of them have not been diagnosed there are some that are walking around saying they have PTSD and haven't been diagnosed. And there's a lot that don't even understand what PTSD really is and how PTSD comes to be. So, again, something else we discuss in the book, all the way from the generic post-traumatic stress injury, all the way to chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as the, the post-traumatic stress disorder growth that you can have where mm-hmm. you can actually come through it and out the other side. A lot of people don't realize that. they think right. that. You know, once you get PTSD, it's like you you you're you're stuck with it. And and right, some right. people are. But there are some people that, you know, with the right resources, they can work through it and and they can have amazing results as well. So um, from a law enforcement perspective, absolutely. There's no way it'd be impossible to say that we don't get PTSD. Matter of fact, there's legislation that's now going up all across the country that's recognizing the fact that we have PTSD or the onsets of PTSD. And now says that we can get workman's comp for that, and 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 so there's different legislation and thing that's coming out to uh, to support us in recognition of that. Now, what I would say is that a lot of us assume we have PTSD because we go through something, and we don't even we don't give ourselves time to heal. And a lot of people don't understand the actual. Uh, terms, I guess you say, of PTSD, like what that really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they don't recognize that, you know, it's usually not just this one time event. It can be, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's a uh, progression yeah. going over and over and and, and, and doing things right. and seeing things. And that we are um, very, uh, uh, what's the word, um, attracted to it because mm-hmm. we, unfortunately, we go to calls that are highly traumatic. We normally don't address our own personal emotional state after the fact. We compartmentalize we it and put it away and we end up not, not addressing it until that way down the road when all of a sudden something triggers us or someone triggers us. And then all of a sudden now we're in this bad place and we're trying to figure out how we got there. And now we're trying to fight our way back out of the ambush. Like I talked about earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, Well, even me back in 1996, uh, when I joined the department, I thought PTSD only related to the military. Now, I was in the military as well. Well, I'm dating myself. Way back in 1988, I joined the military. And they talked about PTSD a lot. You know, um, I was stationed in the Philippines during the Saudi Arabia War. And I mean, it was was a a war over there in the Philippines where I was. No attempts all the time. And I was only 19. And it, it was very scary, a very scary time. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is that a lot of people, even today, right now, and those listening to the podcast still think or they, they have this misunderstanding that PTSD is only for the military. That's right. And and, it, and right. it's not. So it is, no. you know, law enforcement, firefighters, like you said, yeah. correctional officers. It's it's just, domestic, it's,
0: violence. It's, domestic violence. Domestic yeah.
1: violence victims get PTSD. Just, I mean,
0: yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, it's just post trauma. It's just, it's, just, it's a traumatic incident that you've gone through. And and that you haven't worked yourself through. That's right. Okay. So that was a good, good answer. I hope, I hope that that person got the answer that they, (laughs) that
0: they were looking for. I hope so too. And I got one more. Okay. um, And this is really good because this really focuses on the, the heat of what's going on in our country right now with uh, Atlanta and Minneapolis and all the the crazy stuff going on. Right. So um, this, this question was, I'd love to know know if there are any protections from reprisal reprisal for individuals who speak out and against things like excessive force and abuse of authority. And,
1: and they're talking about the officer.
0: I think, I think, I think if I read this, right. Um, it's saying like from reprisal for individuals who speak out and against things like excessive force. So I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll say anybody, right. Whether it's another officer that calls them out or a civilian Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. I would say internally, man, we, we have so many stops in place, right? I mean, if, for example, uh, you do a use of force, you know as well as I do, the documentation, oh, yeah. the eyes that look at your documentation, right, that, that look at everything from the initial supervisor. Well, first, you have to write it. Mm -hmm. then you have to send it to your supervisor. Then your supervisor has to have their supervisor look at it. And then their supervisor has to have an administrative staff look at it. And then um, internal affairs has to look at it. And then the defensive tactics coordinator has to look at it and do an annual assessment based on all of the use of force Mm -hmm. for the entire year for that agency. So there's so many stops in place for, um, excessive force. I, I think a lot of people in the public generically just don't even realize. And of course, you know, with all the hype and everything out there, they think that there's a lot of um, under the rug, sweeping under the rug and stuff like that. Uh, from my agency, man, I've seen some people get hammered okay. for excessive force. I've seen people get days off. I've mm-hmm. seen people get terminated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, but fortunately, those things happen. And mm-hmm you know, just like anywhere else, there's, there's bad apples in every bunch, no matter, you know, I wish I could say we had the perfect place and everybody was perfect and everybody did the right thing and everybody makes good choices and right decisions and everybody trains as hard as, as, you know, as I do. Right. But that's not the case. Right. Unfortunately, you have some people that they, they don't, they're not here for the right reasons. They're here because they, they want a job or they need to, you know, whatever the reason it's, they're, they're not called to do this. Like we were right back in the day, you were called to do this profession. This it's was something calling. that was, it was absolutely, for me, this was absolutely 100% a calling. I think for a large majority of the people that I work with in my same age bracket and, and years, the same thing, we look back and we go, yeah, we were called to do this. It hurts mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. to see um, officers making poor choices and doing the wrong thing. And right. it hurts for us to hear the public outcry and realize that something that we've worked so hard to gain, we've now lost with the public trust, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a long time coming to be able to deal with that. Oh, so yeah. I don't believe that there's reprisal. However, you know as well as I do, there's politics and everything. So we're seeing this right. The the um, Atlanta is a perfect example. The chief right. gets mm-hmm. terminated. Nobody yeah. really knows why. They don't know if it was because they were standing their ground and they didn't want to fire the officer or if they just didn't want they didn't want to do it. I don't know. Right. Uh, but, you know, there's so is there reprisal I in, in the politics? There's reprisal in politics, obviously, but from somebody that just reports something or uh, people that it's their job to go through and look at the information, identify discrepancies, recognize, uh, you know, uh, What's and now with video cameras? I can't forget that, right? Because now you (laughs) got to review video cameras as well. So Mm -hmm. you got to look at the video camera. You have to see how it aligns with what they wrote. Mm -hmm. We're not allowed to look at our video cameras when we write our use of force. I can't go look at the camera. And then write my force report. I have to write my use of force based on what I remember. And then I have to also write in there, this may not coincide exactly with what's in the video due to me writing it from memory alone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess a lot of people don't realize that, that that there's so many stops that are put in place intentionally to try to protect against it. Now, are Mm -hmm. there people that squeak through? Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, there is. And these are the ones that cause what's going on today, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah, it's sad, and and you know when when you're talking about okay, I'm the, the question that this person asked about are there any reprisals? I'm gonna I'm gonna go maybe um a little deeper, or or maybe not deeper. Yeah. Maybe I'm gonna stay on the lighter side of it and try to explain it a little bit better. For example, when I promoted out of CSI and I uh, became a sergeant, uh, I got. To go to the jail again, that's where we have to go and you're a sergeant. Uh, well, you can go to the courthouse too, but mainly you're at the jail uh, as a sergeant until it's time to go to patrol. So as a sergeant, here I am brand new and I'm in the jail, and of course everyone that comes in booking is drunk or high or angry, okay and and they're they're fighting us, etc. Do you know how many times and I can't even count, How many times, you know, they called for a supervisor because when they go hands-on, there has to be a supervisor present. There's video throughout the entire jail. And plus I'm there as a supervisor. And do you know how many times I actually had to say to the deputy, okay, he's under control, let up, but that's my job. Okay. So, so that's, there's not, there's no reprisal for that. So that's answering that person's question there wasn't, there's no reprisal for me to stop that force. That's my job. Now, if if another deputy were standing there and that deputy said, Hey, 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 let up, you know, you have too much, you know, you're putting too much pressure on this person. There's no reprisal for that person either. That's a good, that's a good job. You did, you did well, you did, you might get yelled at by that deputy a little later in the chow hall, you know, Hey, you know, don't go calling me out, you know, don't, you know, things like that. But Who cares? It's, it's better to keep your job than to get fired because of an excessive use of force. Sure. So are there reprisals for stopping somebody from using too much force? I don't think so. I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question. No, there, there's no, there's no negative reprisal. You do, you do your job and you stop that or else guess what? If you don't stop it, you're getting fired too. Look at Minneapolis. You're seeing
0: that, right? You're seeing it in Minneapolis. What's going on? You got four officers.
1: I know how mad you probably were when you watched that video. I was yelling and screaming at them. Like, what are you doing? Let up. What are you doing? Like uh, just over and over and over. What are you doing? You, you, it it just, it's very frustrating. And, and I, and I want to tell the public that I want to tell the whole world that, that, that I I don't even, I, I don't know how many officers, but probably Probably almost every single one of the officers in this world were watching that and yelling at those cops. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, Somebody get that guy. He's not moving anymore. What are you doing? Exactly. He's not anymore. It, Stop. And it's very yeah. frustrating, and we can't do anything about it. And 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 I can't. I don't want to. What's
0: crazy? The um, I heard two of those guys that were there had less than a week on the job. I less just one week on I just the just job.
1: Saw that the other day, and. Ugh, I don't even want to get into that's a whole nother podcast. I know. I
0: know. Yeah. We got to save that. Yeah,
1: Because what do you do? You know, there you're like, okay, I'm I'm there to do my job. I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? But yet, you, got a guy. you know, exactly. So I, I, I feel, I feel for that guy. It's tough. It is tough. Okay. So we've got into your book. Yes. We've talked about it. I want to know about your other book because I was researching you today and I saw this book called Let Go, The Movement Process. Yes. And you you mentioned earlier, it's about your past and it's like a self-help book. It is. So tell us where that came from. Okay.
0: So, um, well, my dad left when I was born. My mom moved out West and we, she was a single mom until I was about seven years old. And then we moved to Washington, D.C., And my mom met this guy. She fell in love. She thought it was just going to be amazing. He was going to take care of us and just the perfect fairy tale. Well, when we got there, the perfect fairy tale became the ultimate nightmare because uh, this guy was a drug dealer. Uh, This guy wasn't who he said he was at all. He basically totally manipulated and tricked my mom into coming over there, uh, destroyed my mother's credit, destroyed her reputation, uh, mental, physical abuse to her. Um, I suffered mental and physical abuse for over three years. Like I said, he was a drug dealer. There were many nights as you know, between seven to 10 that I was riding around with him in the middle of the night while he was selling drugs. And I had to go to school the next morning. Um, I, we lived in a uh, very low income neighborhood, you know, there was a crack house right across the street from me. My mom was white. My stepfather was black. So that caused its own implications right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of only three white kids in my entire school. So I got in fights every single day. I had my nose mm-hmm. broke at least six times. I had to have a um, a surgery when I became an adult because I was getting to that point where I just couldn't breathe right. Um, so just all these different challenges and things. And then it came to a boiling point like everything does. And when I was 10, My stepfather had beat me to the point where I couldn't move for an entire week. And when that happened, I got so angry, I became very homicidal. And my stepfather used to carry a gun in his back left pocket. He threatened to kill cops with it. He threatened to kill other drug dealers with it, bragged about it, showed it to me all the time, and uh, threatened to shoot me with it at some point as well. And I knew that gun was there. And so I made my plan. When I could move again, I packed my bag, I walked into the bedroom, my mom was on the right side, my stepfather was on the left side, I grabbed the gun that was in his uh, back left jeans pocket on the floor, took it out, walked to the foot of the bed, pointed it at his head, started uh, literally just taking the slack out of the trigger, and at the very last second for that gun should have gone bang, it didn't, I took my finger off the trigger. I put it in between my mom and my stepfather on the bed and I grabbed my bag and I ran away from home. For, that was my third time running away from home. And um, I remember they found me three days later. They called my mom. They say, hey, great news. We found your son. And my mom's like, no, he can't come back. He can never come back. How old were you at this point? I was 10. 10. And so um, that, was, that was devastating, man. My mom that had fought for me for all these years and now I felt like had abandoned, abandoned me. And uh, it was was a very difficult time. It led to negative coping mechanisms. I drank from the age of 12 till I was 27. Um, I had a very angry childhood. I went in all kinds of group homes and foster homes, multiple ones until I was about 15 when I finally settled into one that I could get through for another three years. Uh, I barely graduated high school, but I did. Um, The good news in this is that Um, I had some positive influences in law enforcement, which really helped me because I was so scared that I was going to go down the path that my stepfather had gone down, that I was going to be a child abuser, that I was going to be a woman abuser, that I was going to be a drug dealer, that I was going to be broke, that I was going to be, you know, that was going to be all these things that I was terrified of being because I'd already been through it and I didn't want to go through that again. And so I, my, my path was to find the straightest, narrowest path I could and jump on it and try to get there as fast as I could. So, I went back to uh, New Mexico when I turned 18. I got on with the Albuquerque Police Department as a police service aide. I was riding around in like this white car with orange lights and, and like working like all the, the you know minimal stuff that that kept the police officers doing the more important stuff. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, my time came. I was uh, just turning 20. I had a chance to apply for the academy, and my. Uh, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, this is going to be so awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And I, I I went through, I did the tryout, had good physical, good written exam. The moment came where you're going in front of the board and they're going to give you the, you know, let you know whether you got picked or not. And everybody said, nope, sorry. Um, we can't take you. You're just, you look too young. There's a lot of immaturity there. And you would think I'd be like, hey, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to work even harder next year and, and I'll come back and I'm going to be ready next year. Right. No. I was like, you made the biggest beep. <laughs> and, you know, storm out the door, which what I did was I proved them right. In that moment I immediately proved them right. I bet they were looking at each other going, man, thank goodness. Right. Wow. Um, so I get in the car and I'm driving. And of course, on the left is the Army recruiting station. And I pull into the Army recruiting station, and a couple hours later, I'm enlisted. I go into the military for eight years. Uh, wow. I get, I earn my Ranger tab while I'm in Ranger. You know, I go to Ranger school, I earn my tab. Um, I get promoted pretty quick through the ranks. Um, and so, but I'm still dealing with all this, right? I'm still drinking. Mm-hmm. I'm still like the the military fueled everything because it was cool to drink. Nobody Nobody's going to oh, bother yeah. you for being oh, a drinker yeah. there. Right. And, right. And nobody was going to everybody loved me because I was violent. I was angry. I was not afraid. I was the smallest guy, but I was one of the toughest, too. Right. I was one of the meanest. And, and I knew it, man. I was like a little bulldog. Right. And so that was the idea was to, to be mean and don't ever let anybody step on my ground, basically, you mm-hmm. know, protect myself at all costs, no matter what. And so that carried over into law enforcement. Now I'm 27. Um, you know, I, I got married at uh, 23. And, um, actually right, almost 24, cause I was three years into my marriage when I got divorced and I was, we went to Italy. My last station was in Italy over in Vincenza. So I take my new wife over there. That was a huge mistake because, you know, you're, you're over there, you're deployed all the time. I barely saw her. I think I saw her six months out of three years oh, wow. and that just destroyed our relationship. And at the last, in the last ditch effort, she, we had a baby and of course that, that didn't, that made it worse. It didn't make it better. And so, you know, the, the moment came where I had to make a decision, was I going to be a soldier or was I going to be a father? Because that time was coming to reenlist. They wanted to send me to Fort Lewis, Washington, the ranger bat, which any other time I would have been all over that, man. I would have been so excited. But in that moment I was like, I can't go. I can't go. And all I could think about was my dad left me. I'm not going to leave my son. Aww. I'm not going to be my dad. I'm not going to be my dad. So I got out, I applied with, um, Tallahassee Police Department. And um, and I started the job. Now, when I started the job, I'm 27 years old. I hate my mother. I never dealt with the fact that I tried to, um, you know, to kill my stepfather. I haven't dealt with my my alcoholism. I haven't dealt with my anger issues. Um, I'm one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt from a recent divorce. And I'm a brand new father. Right. So I have all of these major stressors that, you know, the, the big things that you look for and not to hire in somebody. But, you know, <laughs> right. the grace of God, I got through it and I got in. Mm-hmm. But now I'm the one that's showing up at your front door when you need the best and you're at your worst. I was what was showing up. And that's what I realized was, wow. Later down the road, when I when I wrote going beyond the call was, man, we got to get this out there. because I know there's more people like me out there that need this type of information. So let go. The movement process focused on um, just that dealing with my past because I was angry. I was an alcoholic. I realized that if I kept going down this path, I was going to lose the one thing I wanted more in life itself was to be a cop. And I didn't want to lose that. And so the passion to want to be a good cop was more overwhelmed, was, what's the word I want to use, was, was more overpowering than drinking and being angry. And I wanted to do something about it. So Mm -hmm. through my wife that I've been married to now for 15 years, she led me back to God. She led me back to church through a retreat that I went to, um, to help me to get mentally and spiritually ready for us when we got married. Um, that's where I, I you know, I basically understood that I had to go back. I had to deal with my past. I had to forgive my mom. I had to forgive my stepfather. I had to forgive myself. So that's kind of where it started was just the, the act of forgiveness.
1: Right. But right. when
0: I did that, the next 10 years was a process that I went through, and I call it the movement process because it focused on mindset, opportunity, vision, empowerment, which you have to be able to move, right, oh. in order to – be able to uh, to to do anything, right? To, you got to be able to move. You can't mm-hmm. you can't create mm-hmm. movement if you can't move. So, mindset, opportunity, vision, and empowerment were the the four key factors. And then once I got that, then it was about educating myself and getting a better understanding of who I was and what I wanted to be and what I was capable of becoming. Then it came to vision. You know where you know where did I see myself in the next year, three years, five years, that kind of thing. And then. You know, when when you really started looking at it now, you got to think about the, the, the navigation part of it. Right. The, the focus of um, where am I now? Where am I going to? How am I going to get there? What happens when I hit obstacles and that kind of thing? And then you have the transformation process, the, the when everything aligns, when all those steps, are, when you have the right mindset, you get the right opportunities, you have a clear vision, you become empowered, you create movement, you get you know you get the right education you got the right um, the, the right navigation in place so you know where you're going from point A to point B and that leads to the transformation. So this whole process was really just amazing to me and I felt like it could really help a lot of other people. So that's why I wrote the book, Let Go the Movement Process.
1: Do you feel that writing the book was therapeutic for you?
0: 100% yes, because I did not want to write this book. I didn't wow. know. I told myself over and over again, I tried to talk myself out of it. I tried to fight God. I tried to fight God. I was like, I don't want to write it. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know the story. And he's like, Yeah, you do. I created the story. You knew the story. You knew what the story was before you were ever born. I created the story in you. You know exactly what it is. And so I started, I hit a key and then I hit another and I hit another. And then before you knew it, I was going. And then, (laughs) then it got to the point where I was literally, I was coming home, I was kissing my wife and my kids, I was having dinner. And I was walking in the bedroom. I was locking the door and I was working on my book from like six in the the evening until two in the morning. I hammered my book out in like 25 days.
1: Wow. The whole
0: book. It's a hundred page book, but I hammered it out in 25 days. Published, well, edited, formatted, published. Uh, My wife did the cover for it and everything. And uh, we got it out in less than 30 days. And That's amazing, I was just, and I was blown away, and I was more blown away that people bought it. Like I was like, "Holy <laughs> cow, this is crazy!" And I was even more blown away when people asked me to come speak, and I was speaking with some some of the best speakers uh, as far as trauma trainers and people like Tony Kane and and people in the state government in Florida. And I was just, I was blown away. I was like, "Man, this is incredible!" Wow. And then that really opened me up to have a better understanding of what what that void was. And I really believe that this is a huge game changer for us. If we were to apply it, if we were to get every agency across the country to become more trauma informed and more understanding of the social, emotional aspects, not only of the job, but how it affects us personally and how it affects our families and the people we know, love and care about, that we would be better humans for it.
1: I think it needs to be a mandatory um, class. In all academies, that's post certified, yes, you know, e- standard of training certified. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> we need that. Well, Sean, this what an amazing podcast. You have just de- delved deep into this book. It sounds so interesting. I am going to read it. Awesome. It, I, I, Like I said, I wish I would have read it.
0: I got to get a copy of your book, too. 15 years
1: ago.
0: I'm actually going to buy a copy of your book for a friend of mine, too, that well, was in uh, forensics as well.
1: Oh okay. Yeah, if if they're in forensics, they're going to need to read that.
0: <laughs> well, they're retired now, but, oh, but okay. They, but they had some flashbacks and things when. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you, you kind of go into this job like like you said, you know, you're it's a calling and you want to help people, but you don't realize that every single day you come home just completely drained, you're tired, you're mentally tired, your body's tired. And then you have to deal with your own things as well. So that's, that's what you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Yep. So, yeah. So, okay. So you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and they're all under, they're not under your name. They're under going beyond the call.
0: Yeah. You can find me either way. You can find me under Sean Wyman or under going beyond the call, either one.
1: Okay. So everyone out there, look it up. It's on Amazon as well. So how can they get this book? Is it an e-back format paper book?
0: Uh, yes, okay, it's, uh, it's in paper it's in paperback, it's in the okay. ebook, and uh, we're working on an audiobook that we want to put out here in the future. Okay. I think that would be really beneficial to a lot of people. So that's something we're working on here in the future. But uh okay. GBTC, so going beyond the call, the, the acronym GBTC uh, book dot com. And that takes you right to the Amazon link. Oh, perfect.
1: I just mm-hmm. I just put it in the Google and it came right up. Okay. Yep. All right, Sean. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. What a wonderful book. I can't wait to read it. And, and you
0: have been such an amazing host. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Sean. Everyone, get out there and get his book. If you're enjoying The Real Life Podcast, I invite you to consider supporting it monetarily. Just 99 cents a month will go a long way to secure future podcasts. Where exactly does your money go? It pays the monthly fees to use the program I use to record the guests. I want to recognize and thank the following people for supporting The Real Life Podcast. Ron, Ben, Paul, Anne, Katie, Susan, Cami, and Lori. So thank you for listening, and I hope you'll decide to support the Real Life Podcast. Just click on the podcast link that I post on Twitter and Facebook, then click in the box that reads support with a dollar sign next to it. You're all amazing. I'll see you next week. Have you ever wondered what being a part of CSI is really like? If so, here's your chance to experience it. My book titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul, contains 11 personal accounts of the most grueling and heartbreaking crime scenes I worked during my 15 years in the Crime Scene Investigations Unit. While reading my book, you'll walk inside the crime scene tape with me. You'll catch a glimpse of what I saw, touched, smelled, and even tasted during an average workday. I'll take you on a difficult journey of memories, uncovering layers of emotional trauma left behind. So, if you're considering a job in CSI, this is the book for you. Or if you're just wondering what it's like to work in CSI, again, this is the book for you. Through My Eyes is available in the ebook format and paperback on Amazon. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.